As we attempt to understand the premillennial system, particularly as it is set forth in dispensationalism, it is not without some misgivings that we grope our way through a bewildering maze of dispensations, covenants, second comings, resurrections, judgments, etc. Present-day dispensationalism, which is the popular form in the United States, sets forth seven dispensations, eight covenants, the covenant in Eden before the fall, and after the fall one each with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, the Palestinian covenant, Deuteronomy 30, and the new covenant instituted by Christ, Schofield Bible, page 6. Two second comings, a coming of Christ for his people at the rapture, and a coming with his people seven years later at the revelation. At least three and perhaps four resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous dead at the rapture, a resurrection of the martyrs who died during the great tribulation which occurs at the revelation, a resurrection of the wicked dead at the end of the millennium, and a resurrection of the righteous who died during the millennium, if such there be. And from four to seven judgments, the judgment of the righteous immediately following the rapture, the sheep and goats judgment of the nations at the revelation, the judgment of the wicked at the end of the millennium, and a judgment of angels, presumably also a judgment of the righteous who lived during the millennium. Schofield adds a judgment of the believer's sins at the cross in the person of Christ, a judgment of self in the believer, conscience, and a judgment of Israel. A second rapture also will be needed for the righteous who are alive at the end of the millennium in order that their earthly bodies may be changed. Even this does not exhaust the possibilities of the system, for according to some there will be two eternally separate peoples of God, the church permanently in heaven and Israel permanently on the earth. The Bible is written in language that ordinary people can understand, but this intricate, complex, imaginative system presents an interpretation that surely never would have been thought of except in defense of a theory. How refreshing to turn back to the straightforward postmillennial system which teaches one second coming, one rapture, one general and universal resurrection, one general and universal judgment, and one unified people of God inhabiting the new heavens and the new earth. In the study of eschatology there are two extremes that we should try to avoid. On the one hand, the uncritical, credulous type of mind that accepts these things without adequate evidence as to their truth or falsity. And on the other, the rationalistic type of mind that rejects this or that system which gives a prominent place to the supernatural. David Brown has analyzed this problem well in the following paragraph. He says, There are certain types of mind which, either from constitutional temperament or the peculiar school of theology to which they are attached, have tendencies in the direction of premillennialism so strong that they are ready to embrace it almost immediately, with love, souls that burn with love for Christ, who with the mother of Sisera cry through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariot? These people he refers to as honest and warm-hearted, sincerely looking for Christ's return. There are next, he says, the curious and restless spirits who feed upon the future. They are in their very element when settling the order in which the events shall occur, 
separating the felicities of the kingdom into its terrestrial and celestial departments, respectively, sorting the multiplied particulars relating to Ezekiel and the apocalyptic cities, and such like studies. For such minds, whose appetite for the marvelous is the predominant feature of their mental character, and who live in a sort of unreal world, for these, the confused and shadowy grandeur of a kingdom of glory upon earth, with all that relates to its introduction, its establishment, its administration, and its connection with the final and unchanging state, opens up a subject of surpassing interest and reveling delight, the very good which their peculiar temperament craves and feeds on. And to mention one more, there are those who seem to have a constitutional tendency to materialize the objects of faith and can scarcely conceive of them save as more or less implicated with this terrestrial platform. Such minds, it is superfluous to observe, will have a natural affinity with a system which brings the glory of the resurrection state into immediate and active communion with sublunary affairs and represents the reign of those who neither marry nor are given in marriage but are as the angels of God in heaven, as consisting in a mysterious rule over men in the flesh, who eat and drink, buy and sell, plant and build, marry wives, and are given in marriage. To sit about proving to persons of this cast of mind that premillennialism will not stand the test of scripture is like attempting to rob them of a jewel or to pluck the sun out of the heavens. To such minds, any other view of the subject is perfectly bald and repulsive, while theirs is enriched with the glory that excelleth. To them it carries the force of intuitive perception. They feel, they know it to be true. On the other hand, Brown warns against an unreasonable anti-premillennial tendency on the part of those who do not have the patience to make a careful exegetical investigation into the real meaning of the text particularly the type that tends to tone down the supernatural element in the scriptures. Such minds, he says, turn away from premillennialism just as instinctively as the others are attracted to it. The bare statement of its principles carries to their minds its own refutation, not so much from its preconceived unscripturalness as from the absurdity which it seems to carry on the face of it. They have hardly patience to listen to it, it requires an effort to sit without a smile under a grave exposition in defense of it. If they undertake to refute it, it is a task the irksomeness of which they are unable to conceal and their unfitness for which can scarcely fail to appear. Let us try to avoid both extremes, investigating reverently the mind of the Spirit. A quote from the Second Advent, pages 8 and 9. Chapter 2 Page 149 Dispensationalism The Seven Dispensations Earlier in this work we have cited the definition of dispensationalism given by Dr. J. G. Voss, which is as follows. Dispensationalism is that false sense of Bible interpretation represented by the writings of J. N. Darby and the Schofield Reference Bible which divides the history of mankind into seven distinct periods or dispensations and affirms that in each period God deals with the human race on the basis of some one specific principle. Dispensationalism denies the spiritual identity of Israel and the church 
and tends to set grace and law against each other as mutually exclusive principles. Dr. Schofield says that a dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect to obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. Page 5 The dispensations are said to be seven in number. In each succeeding dispensation there is a radical change of character and governing principles so that God deals with man on a plan different from that of any preceding dispensation. Each is thus complete and sufficient in itself and is not to be confused with the principle operative in any preceding dispensation. No scripture proof is given for the number seven. Why the number should be set at seven is difficult to understand unless it be that seven is the biblical number often used to express the idea of perfection and completeness. We must say, however, that the number is wholly fanciful and arbitrary and that one could argue just as plausibly for other dispensations or combine some of these. According to the Schofield Bible, the dispensations are as follows. 1. Innocence, the period in Eden from the creation of Adam and Eve until the fall. 2. Conscience, from the fall until the flood. Conscience is defined as the knowledge of right and wrong, and in this period it became man's guide. No scripture proof is given to show why this period, as contrasted with the others, should be characterized as preeminently that of conscience. 3. Human government, from the flood until the call of Abraham. Again, no reason is given, nor is any apparent, for this designation. If this term had been applied to the time of Moses, there would have been at least an apparent reason, for at that time much of the civil and religious life of Israel was placed under human administrators. 4. Promise From the call of Abraham to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Special promises were given at this time to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, but these were essentially the same as the all-embracing promise of redemption given in Genesis 3.15 immediately after the fall. 5. Law From the giving of the law on Mount Sinai through most of the public ministry of Christ. The Gospels are assigned primarily to the era of law rather than that of grace, despite the fact that Christ said, The law and the prophets were until John. Luke 16.16 16. And John wrote, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 1.17 6. Grace From the closing days of the public ministry of Christ until the second coming. This is the period of the church. It is free from law as a means of salvation and lives exclusively in the realm of grace. 7. Kingdom the millennium, a 1,000-year period from the return of Christ until the end of his reign on earth. It is interesting to compare with this the system worked out by Blackstone in Jesus is Coming, a chart on page 225. Briefly, it is as follows. 1. Innocence, from Eden to the expulsion. 2. Freedom, from the expulsion to the flood, 1,655 years. 3. Government, from the flood to Sodom, 431 years. 4. Pilgrim, from Sodom to the Red Sea, 427 years. 5. Israel, from the Red Sea to the Ascension, 
1,491 years. 6. Mystery. The Church Age, from the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to the Rapture, already over 19 centuries. And 7. Manifestation. The Kingdom, from the descent of Christ at the Revelation, 1,000 years, to be followed by the new heavens and the new earth. It is significant that these systems worked out by two of the leading advocates of dispensationalism differ in considerable detail. Not all dispensationalists are agreed on the number of dispensations. Some list only four. Others list as many as eight. But due to the popularity of the Schofield Bible, seven is the number most generally accepted. This difference of opinion regarding the number and the difference in time as to when they begin and end is good evidence that the system does not have solid scriptural support, that it is in fact only a speculative theory. This division of history into dispensations is felt by non-dispensationalists to be quite arbitrary and without scriptural support. The titles are to be criticized as particularly inappropriate since five of the seven as outlined by Schofield, conscience, human government, promise, law, and grace, characterize every age of human history. Five of these are past, having had their fulfillment in the Old Testament period. We are now in the sixth, that of grace. The seventh, kingdom, is to follow during the millennium. Extreme dispensationalists say that the Sermon on the Mount and most of the Gospels belong to the kingdom. The book of Revelation after the third chapter also is said to belong to the future. Thus, only part of the Gospels and the Pauline epistles are said to be intended for the Christian of today. The distinctive feature of this system is that each dispensation represents a different principle in God's dealings with men. The dispensations are regarded not as stages in one single organic development, but as distinct and mutually exclusive, or even as opposed to each other. In each there is a new revelation of God's will, and in each God tests man's obedience in a new and different way. God starts each dispensation out all right, and man is thus given repeated opportunities to solve his problems of sin and government. But in each dispensation he fails to meet the test, and each ends in moral bankruptcy and in judgment. God intervenes only when man has proved himself unequal to the task. To appeal to Augustine's words, distinguish the ages and the scriptures harmonize to justify dispensationalism, as Schofield does, page 3, is entirely unwarranted for the simple reason that Augustine knew nothing of such divisions as are set forth in this system. Nor was Augustine a premillennialist in the first place. He was, in fact, strongly opposed to that system. The importance which dispensationalists attach to these divisions is set forth by George D. Beckwith when he says, To study the Bible dispensationally is all important if one would learn how to divide aright the word of truth. Schofield also uses this expression. God's plan of redemption in the Bible cannot be fully understood except through an understanding of these dispensations. God's Prophetic Plan, page 22. We are reminded, however, of the words of Dr. Alice, who says, The slogan of dispensationalists, rightly dividing the word of truth, is itself a misrepresentation. 
This exhortation does not mean to divide up scripture into dispensations and set each one at variance with the others, but so to interpret it that by a study of each and every part the glorious unity and harmony of the whole shall be exhibited and the correctness of the exposition of the one part be established by its perfect agreement with every other part of scripture as the God-inspired word. A quote from the Evangelical Quarterly, London, January 1936. And Dr. Murray says that dividing the plan of salvation into dispensations is not rightly dividing the word of truth, but wrongly dividing the word of God. This practice of dividing the Bible into parts and setting one part over against the others means, for instance, that in the dispensation of law there was no grace, and that during the dispensation of grace there is no law. Dr. Schofield says that during the dispensation of promise, Abraham and his descendants were under a covenant of grace, but that Israel rashly accepted the law. At Sinai, they exchanged grace for law. A quote from the Schofield Bible, page 20. The inference is that under law they became righteous by doing righteously, while under grace we are declared to be righteous because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Schofield does not actually say that the Jews were saved by their own good works in obeying the law of God, but that is implied in the sharp contrast between the covenant of law and that of grace, and the exchange of the one for the other. The plan of salvation as set forth in the Bible is one organic whole, revealing a marvelous and profound unity. It cannot be split up into contradictory parts, much less into seven mutually exclusive dispensations. Dr. William Mazelink properly says, There is but one mediator for the New Testament, as for the Old. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus, and neither is there any other foundation laid. The way of the cross leads home in the Old Testament as well as in the New. This is told us in the sacrifices and symbols of the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament fulfillment. A quote from Why Thousand Years, page 67. To say that the Mosaic dispensation was a dispensation under law from which grace was excluded is clearly erroneous. Rather, in the Mosaic dispensation, the outward emphasis was upon law, but that was designed to serve a twofold purpose, namely that the law might serve as a guide and rule of life in showing the Israelites what was right and that by showing them how utterly impossible it was for them to earn salvation by a perfect keeping of the law, they should be convinced of the need of a Savior. In other words, as Paul expresses it, the law was a tutor to bring them to Christ. Galatians 3.24 Ever since the first promise of salvation, the protevangelum given in Genesis 3.15, salvation has been by grace, not by works. The law in itself was a means of grace designed to show how far short all human righteousness fell and so to point the worshippers to one who would provide righteousness for them. Through the blood sacrifice in which the life of an innocent and faultless victim was substituted for that of the sinner, it served as a means to educate them concerning the future atonement that would be provided for sins. Hence the Mosaic dispensation of law and the gospel dispensation of grace are not mutually exclusive or contradictory, 
but supplementary, each a part of one unified system revealed throughout the Bible. Dr. Burkhoff points out that there are serious objections to the dispensational view and lists the following. A. The word dispensation, which is a scriptural term, see Luke chapter 16, verses 2 through 4, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 17, Ephesians 1, verse 10, and chapter 3, verses 2 and 9, Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, and 1 Timothy 1, chapter 4, is here used in an unscriptural sense. It denotes a stewardship, an arrangement, or an administration, but never a testing time or a time of probation. B. The distinctions are clearly arbitrary. This is evident already from the fact that dispensationalists themselves sometimes speak of them as overlapping. The second dispensation is called the dispensation of conscience, But according to Paul, conscience was still the monitor of the Gentiles in his day. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. The third is known as the dispensation of human government, but the specific command in it, which was disobeyed and therefore rendered man liable to judgment, was not the command to rule the world for God, of which there is no trace, but the command to replenish the earth. The fourth is designated the dispensation of promise, and is supposed to terminate with the giving of the law. But Paul says that the law did not disannul the promise, and that this was still in effect in his own day. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, and Galatians 3, verses 15 through 29. The so-called dispensation of the law is replete with glorious promises, and the so-called dispensation of grace did not abrogate the law as a rule of life. C. According to the usual representation of this theory, man is on probation right along. He failed in the first test and thus missed the reward of eternal life, but God was compassionate and in mercy gave him a new trial. Repeated failures led to repeated manifestations of the mercy of God in the introduction of new trials, which, however, kept man on probation all the time. This representation is contrary to Scripture, which does not represent fallen man as still on probation, but as an utter failure, totally unable to render obedience to God, and as absolutely dependent on the grace of God for salvation. D. This theory is also divisive in tendency, dismembering the organism of Scripture with disastrous results. Those parts of Scripture that belong to any one of the dispensations are addressed to and have normative significance for the people of that dispensation and no one else. The Bible is divided into two books, the book of the kingdom, comprising the Old Testament and part of the New, addressed to Israel, and the book of the church, consisting of the remainder of the New Testament, addressed to us. Since the dispensations do not intermingle, it follows that in the dispensation of the law there is no revelation of the grace of God, and that in the dispensation of grace there is no revelation of the law as binding on the New Testament people of God. If space permitted, it would not be difficult to prove that this is an entirely untenable position. A quote from Systematic Theology, pages 290 and 291. Instead of setting forth God's dealings with man under seven dispensations, the Bible sets forth two covenants. 
the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. It then divides the covenant of grace into two dispensations or administrations, one that of the Old Testament and two that of the New Testament. In the covenant of works, Adam in the Garden of Eden was placed under a test of pure obedience to God's command. If he had been obedient, he would have gained eternal life for himself and for all his posterity, since he acted in a representative capacity. This test, however, ended in disobedience and brought eternal death to him and his posterity, except as God's grace intervened to provide redemption. The Old Testament dispensation was the first stage of the process by which God proposed to redeem man from sin through a Savior. This, all of it after the fall in the Garden of Eden, belonged to the covenant of grace. It looked forward to a future atonement and was based largely on promises given to the patriarchs, the keeping of the law of Moses, and on rituals and sacrifices which had no real value in themselves, but which foretold the coming of the Messiah. The law was a constant reminder of the demands of the covenant of works, which was perfect obedience, and was designed to teach man the hopelessness of trying to earn salvation by good works. Through this period, salvation was limited to God's chosen race, the Israelites, and to individuals who were brought into this group. During the Old Testament dispensation, the covenant of grace was revealed in four stages. 1. The sentence on the serpent. Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here in the curse pronounced upon Satan, there is found an indirect promise of redemption for man. There is no formal covenant, but God places himself on the side of man in the struggle with Satan. That redemption would be costly and painful, as was symbolized by the bruising of the heel of the woman's seed, but it would mean total defeat for Satan, as was symbolized by the crushing of the head of the serpent. This is generally recognized as the first messianic prophecy. Number 2. The Covenant with Noah. Genesis chapter 8 verse 20 through chapter 9 verse 17. In Genesis 9 9 we read, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. In this covenant, God promises that he will not again destroy the earth with a flood and that the regular succession of seed time and harvest cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. 3. The Covenant with Abraham Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 Here we read, Now Jehovah said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto the land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And be thou a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and him that curseth thee will I curse, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Abraham and his family are set aside as a definitely marked body of believers with the promise that in him and his seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This has been called by some the beginning of an institutional church. 4. The Sinaitic Covenant This was a national covenant made with all of the descendants of Jacob who had come out of Egypt. 
church and state were so closely linked that they could not be separated. Membership in the one automatically meant membership in the other. An elaborate body of moral, civil, and religious laws was given. As Burkhoff says concerning this covenant, a separate priesthood was instituted and a continuous preaching of the gospel in symbols and types was introduced. These symbols and types appear under two different aspects, as the demands of God imposed on the people and as a divine message of salvation to the people. The Jews lost sight of the latter aspect and fixed their attention exclusively on the former. They regarded the covenant ever increasingly, but mistakenly, as a covenant of works and saw in the symbols and types a mere appendage to this. From his book, Systematic Theology, page 298. While there were many legal aspects to this covenant, it was definitely not a covenant of works through which Israel might merit life by keeping the law. Schofield is in error when, in accordance with his assignment of this period to the dispensation of law, he speaks of this as a conditional Mosaic covenant of works, page 95, in which the test was legal obedience as the condition of salvation. God's purpose, however, was not that Israel should merit salvation by keeping the law. That had become impossible since the fall. Rather, it showed the Israelites their inability to keep the law as God had demanded. The New Testament covenant of grace or the New Testament dispensation is that in which we now are. The Messiah has now come and through his suffering and death has paid the price for man's redemption so that God now deals with men on the basis of an accomplished atonement. All that remains now is to apply that atonement in the salvation of individual souls. The distinction between Jew and Gentile has been broken down, never to be re-established, since the condition which prompted that distinction in the first place is never to be re-established. The dispensational idea of a Jewish remnant, which does not accept Christ as Messiah, but which during the tribulation preaches another gospel, that of the kingdom, is false and comes under Paul's condemnation in Galatians 1, 8. But though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach unto you any gospel other than that which we preached unto you, let him be anathema. This dispensation continues until the second coming of Christ, which is followed immediately by the general resurrection and the general judgment and the introduction of the eternal state. Thus in all ages God's dealings with men have been through a covenant relationship. The word covenant occurs many times in both the Old and New Testament and the religion of the Bible is better described as a covenant religion, not a religion of dispensations as set forth in present-day dispensationalism. Adam in the Garden of Eden was in covenant relationship with God in a covenant of works and was on test not merely for himself but as the federal head and representative of all his posterity, that is, for all humanity. But that covenant was speedily broken. It was followed by the covenant of grace. Salvation by a covenant, says Dr. Mazelink. The thought is charming, for we were lost by a covenant. Father Adam represented the whole human race in the covenant of works. Had Adam kept the covenant, he and all his children would have been blessed. Alas, our foundation was too frail. Adam fell and the whole human race fell with him. 
Some have inquired, is it just? Do not raise the question, for it is the only way of redemption. The devils, evil spirits, when they fell, fell each one for himself. And so they could never rise again. But we fell by our representative. Here then was the way to restore us again. As we sinned representatively, it was also possible for us to satisfy the law by a representative. Here was the opening for the way of salvation. By a second covenant head, man can be redeemed, and therefore Jesus Christ comes as the second Adam, and God makes the covenant with him. O matchless mystery of divine love and mercy. A quote from Why the Thousand Years, page 46. It is important to keep in mind that premillennialism and dispensationalism are not synonymous terms. Premillennialism is the broader term and includes all those who believe that Christ returns before the millennium and that he will rule personally on earth for a thousand years. Dispensationalism, on the other hand, includes only those premillennialists who follow Darby and Schofield in dividing the divine plan into dispensations during each of which God deals with the human race on the basis of some specific principle. Thus all dispensationalists are premillennialists, but not all premillennialists are dispensationalists. At the present time, however, the great majority of premillennialists, particularly in the United States, are dispensationalists. Most of the Bible institutes, as well as the minority of theological seminaries that teach premillennialism, are dispensational. There is a logical connection between premillennialism and dispensationalism. Most of those who take premillennialism seriously and become enthusiastic about it go on to adopt dispensationalism. But conversely, we believe that most of those who become convinced of the errors of dispensationalism proceed to throw premillennialism overboard too. Chapter 3, page 159, The Rapture The best definition of the rapture that we have found is that given by Dr. Robert Strong who says, By the rapture is meant the sudden and possibly secret coming of Christ in the air to catch away from the earth the resurrected bodies of those who have died in the faith and with them the living saints. A quote in the Presbyterian Guardian, February 25, 1942. The word rapture, like the word trinity, is not found in the Bible, but the idea that it expresses is clearly taught in two of Paul's epistles. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 17, we read, But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them that fall asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as the rest, who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also that are fallen asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we that are alive, that are left unto the coming of the Lord, shall in no wise precede them that are fallen asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we that are alive, that are left, shall together with them be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 through 53 we read, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We all shall not sleep 
but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Here we are told that as regards the saints, two great miracles are to occur at the Lord's coming. First, that the dead in Christ are to rise, and second, that the living saints are to be changed, transformed, transfigured, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, so that they do not go through the process of death. And then both groups together are to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Notice that it is not the rapture, not the taking away of the saints, but the translation of the living saints that is to be accomplished suddenly. We all shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And how marvelously magnificent that change shall be. When Christ shall appear, we shall be like him, remade in his heavenly image and his celestial likeness. When Christ, who is our life, shall be manifested, then shall ye also with him be manifested in glory. Colossians 3, verse 4. Thus one generation of believers is to be taken out of the world without dying. In all human history, so far as the record goes, only two persons have been taken out of the world in that manner. Concerning Enoch we read, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Genesis 5.24 And in Hebrews 11 verse 5, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God translated him. And regarding Elijah we read, Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which parted them, Elijah and Elisha, both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11 Historic premillennialism holds that there is to be but one return of Christ, that is, but one second coming, and that this occurs immediately before the establishment of the millennial kingdom. It differs from dispensationalism in that it holds that the church is to go through the tribulation which it believes is foretold in Matthew 24. It holds that the return of Christ will be heralded by certain signs such as wars and unrest among nations and apostasy from the faith. Some think that the present wave of modernism in the church fulfills that condition. The return of the Jews to Palestine and the appearance of the Antichrist it holds further that the tribulation is to be of indeterminate, although of comparatively short duration. At the end of that period the saints, both the living and the dead, are to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and almost immediately thereafter Christ and his people return to the earth for the millennial reign. This was standard premillennial doctrine until the rise of the Plymouth Brethren movement in England under the leadership of John N. Darby. Post and amillennialists, too, believe that the rapture comes at the end of the present world order. Although postmillennialists believe that it is preceded by the millennium, while amillennialists believe that there is to be no millennium in the usual sense of the term, some holding that the term relates to the entire church age, while others hold that it relates to the intermediate state. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, hold that the rapture occurs before the tribulation, that the church therefore does not go through the tribulation, 
that Christ's coming is without further signs and literally may occur at any moment and that following the rapture Christ and his people are to be in the air for a period of seven years the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy while the tribulation is in progress on the earth dispensationalism further holds that while the saints are with Christ in the air during this period there occurs the judgment of the saints which consists primarily in the assignment of rewards and the marriage feast of the Lamb at the end of this seven year period Christ and the saints return to the earth and the millennial kingdom is instituted thus the first resurrection the rapture and the first judgment take place more than a thousand years before the end of the world dispensationalism splits the second coming of Christ into two parts the rapture which is his coming for the saints and the revelation which is his coming with the saints this latter being also his coming for Israel and the world it holds that no predicted event remains to be fulfilled before it occurs not even those to be raptured are to have any further sign or indication that the event is near nothing is given us in scripture so definite as to form a sign of or date for the rapture says Blackstone and then he adds we are to be always watching and waiting for it and expecting it at any moment a quote from Jesus is coming page 207 according to the dispensational theory Christ comes only part way to the earth at this time and so is not seen by unbelievers who are left Reverend Jesse F. Silver another dispensational writer says quickly and invisibly unperceived by the world the Lord will come as a thief in the night and catch away his waiting saints from his book the Lord's return page 260 thus all will be silent secret mysterious according to the Schofield Bible the saints of both the Old and New Testament are included page 1228 however there seems to be an inconsistency at this point in the dispensational theory for while in most cases they are so careful to distinguish between Jews and Gentiles and to keep them separate here they have the Old Testament saints the great majority of whom are Jews rising at the time of the rapture with the church saints the large majority of whom are Gentiles on the other hand the revelation or Christ's coming at the end of the tribulation period is said to be for the Jews as well as for the Gentile nations this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com we can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's ED M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-6-L-3-T-5. 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.